Today's guest, Dr. Susan Chain. Susan lectures in primate conservation at Oxford Brookes University. She's the co-director of the Borneo Nature Foundation, the vice chair of the IUCN SSA, which I'll let her explain because it's a bit of a mouthful. And she's spent much of the past two decades carrying out research in Southeast Asia. This episode is jam-packed full of facts and important environmental messages. If you don't know anything about gibbons and the struggles that those wonderful little animals face, that is all about to change. Enjoy it. Dr. Susan Chain. Thank you very much for coming on. I really, really appreciate this. I'm quite excited to learn all about Gibbons. I'm quite excited to do my first podcast, so... Great. But before we get into Gibbons, can you explain about some of the organisations that you work with? So I'm one of the co-directors of the Borneo Nature Foundation and we've been working out in Indonesian Borneo now for nearly 20 years with a focus on protecting landscapes and ecosystems but also understanding the wildlife within those to help us inform how to protect the habitat and very much working with local communities. So our three main, um, I suppose, flagship species that we're looking at are the orangutan, the gibbon um, and also the clouded, clouded leopard. And uh, the other organisation I wanted to ask you about was the IUCN primates section on small apes. Yes. And so you can explain so, what your yeah, role so the, is there. Uh, the official title is the IUCN Species Survival Commission Primate Specialist Group Section on Small Apes, or the SSA for short. Yeah. And there are 20 species of gibbons and obviously many hundreds of species of primates around the world. But it was felt that the gibbons in particular needed a bit of an extra focus, also to bring together many people who are working on the gibbons, and also to put them into the, more into the public eye. So that's why there is this special role for, for gibbon projects. And I'm leading that, helping to coordinate everything, helping to bring people together, putting people in touch with each other, and also using my own experience and that of people working on gibbons in other countries around uh, Southeast Asia to work out what we need to do in order to protect gibbons, what other actions we need, where there are gaps in the knowledge. For example, uh, many gibbons are ending up in the pet trade. And so many, unfortunately, do end up in rescue centres. And that means that we need vets who are able to treat injured injured gibbons. And there's been a hugely successful orangutan vet advisory group running for the last 10 years, but nothing similar for gibbons. So one of the gaps that I'm trying to help fill is by bringing together gibbon vets from different rescue centres and from zoos outside of Asia who've got experience with with gibbons to to get together and have workshops to share and exchange knowledge. What do you think the reason is that orangutans are in the public eye so much, yet gibbons are much more in the background? I think there's two reasons. Um, Officially, the orangutan, chimpanzee, gorilla, bonobo are called great apes. And the gibbons are the small apes. Um, We definitely don't use the word lesser. There's nothing lesser about them. They're just smaller. Because they are a little bit closer to us, certainly in body size and and behaviour, I think that the public has a bit more empathy with them. Whereas I think gibbons, because of being smaller in the public's eye, maybe get moved into that category of monkey, slightly less related to humans. Uh, But I also think it's largely because, certainly for... um, three of the big apes they've had extremely charismatic people supporting them so you've had 
uh, Diane Fossey for gorillas. You've got Jane Goodall for the chimpanzees and Ruta Galdikas for orangutans. So three very prominent people or women um, who have spent their entire lives uh, promoting those species to the public. Obviously, Diane Fossey was, was killed in, in uh, 1986, but her legacy of the, the, the Diane Fossey Gorilla Foundation continues. And I think there just hasn't been that one single person uh, for the Gibbons. What there are are, is many, many different people in all the different countries where Gibbons exist who are doing an awful lot for for their work, but those individual people haven't really got that, I suppose, global reach. They've not been on television very much. No, or if they have been, they're featured in in their own language. They're not featured necessarily in English, and that does limit their... Um, how how well they can spread to the rest of the world. Are gibbons able to be filmed in the same way that gorillas and orangutans are? Yes, if you have patience. Right. And a lot of stamina to keep up with them. They're very fast when they go yeah. through the forest. They don't come to the ground. But you can, you can follow them. Uh, you can keep up with them. It is possible in some places to build platforms up in the trees in... Uh, for example, the forest where I work, because we know where the territories are, we know where the gibbons are, we can sort of predict where they might appear. And again, a lot of time and patience uh, waiting on those platforms for the gibbons to come past. Then you can get, uh, you can get shots of them at the, at the same level. Yeah, so if the BBC was to focus on gibbons for a section on, on one of their major nature programmes... Mm-hmm then given the, the amount of funding and time that they put into those sorts of programmes, they'd be able to get some really good shots and tell a message from the given point of view. Yes, we have had the BBC come out a few times. Unfortunately, they've never stayed much longer than three or four days. That really isn't enough time. You know, when you're watching things like um, Dynasties and Blue Planet and uh, things, and you realise that for certain things, you know, the BBC can spend 11 months somewhere to get that footage. Uh, probably wouldn't need 11 months to get the footage of the gibbons, but you certainly need longer than three or four days. Because, again, it, it, it takes everybody time to acclimatise to the forest before you can then actually start chasing after the animals. Have you had many personal interactions with the, with the gibbons? Or how, how far away do they keep you? So the ones in the wild, we, we try to maintain a minimum of 15 metres between us and them. It's obviously at an angle because we're on the ground and they're up in the trees. Um, The younger ones do approach a little bit closer, as in they'll come further down the tree to look at us, uh, but they're never interested in contact. They're totally wild. Whereas uh, when I've worked in rescue centres, obviously, especially if you're rescuing extremely young gibbons they should be with their mum and so they're desperately looking for contact for warmth and reassurance and so in the absence of their mum because she's probably been killed in order to capture the infant you have to hold them you have to look after them the youngest that I've ever uh, helped rescue was six days old wow how um, small are they then tiny I mean smaller it's much smaller than this microphone but of course, their grasping instinct is already is already fully formed. But irrespective of any sort of emotional attachment that little one has, it's so small that it, without any body contact, it simply won't survive because it's it it'll get cold. And I I keep hearing back from the the, the project where he's at the Callaway project that he is 
he was released. He was paired with a female. Uh, he was released and is now back in, in the wild and has become a father himself. So yes. I suppose that's what you do the work for, to hear those stories, yes, those success stories. Yes, absolutely. Not, not every animal that's rescued from the pet trade can be returned to the wild. They will often have physical injuries. That means they can't go back. They may also have diseases, um, particularly hepatitis. They're susceptible. They're, again, like the big apes, they're very closely related to us. So they are susceptible to human diseases. And depending on how long they've been kept in captivity and the conditions they're kept in, many of them might actually have psychological problems. They will have been isolated. They will have been kept potentially in extremely small cages with little contact with anyone, human or or otherwise. And they'll become very emotionally and mentally dis- disturbed, which can be difficult to rehabilitate. And obviously it would be unethical to return an animal back into the forest if sure. there was any indication that it simply wouldn't cope. Yeah. In that scenario then, well, what do you think ethically we should be doing? Do, is it okay to keep them in a, a zoo and give them the best life at that point possible? And, well, to me, zoos, zoos are... Um, I have very mixed feelings. From my childhood, I've got very good memories of going to zoos mm-hmm. or going to... Uh, Nolsey Safari Park, for example. I don't know if you know that one particularly. I've heard of it, but, but I've not been. Well, I've not been since I was probably about ten. But it was amazing. Like you, we got to the bit. The highlight really was driving through the the monkey enclosure, and they could like jump on your cars and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You could really get up close. I suppose that it starts your appreciation for nature when you live in a city or you're you, you know you're not surrounded by these animals. So. In in one respect, I feel like zoos have a very positive impact. Mm-hmm. But in another respect, when I got a little bit older and realised that this was not their natural environment and they shouldn't be in, kept in these small cages or these small environments, I started to question whether I wanted to, to visit them anymore. But then, I don't know, where do, you, where do you see the balance there? It's a very good question. It's one that comes up frequently. Um, I think the first thing to say is that you know, when we're talking about zoos, there are some very good zoos, and I'll, I'll mean, explain what I mean by that. And there's some truly appalling ones that have no business calling themselves a zoo, uh, where the animals are maltreated, they're not fed properly. Whereas, you know, a good zoo, as you say, it's very often the first time that children will see these animals that live potentially on the other side of the planet. There's a lot that zoos can do in terms of education. I think that many zoos could be doing more. And also many zoos are now very actively involved in doing research and conservation and raise money and support in situ projects. So they support projects like Borneo Nature Foundation or support Gibbon projects and many other species by giving us money in order to do that work that needs to be done. Zoos are also getting, good zoos, are also getting a lot better at learning from the animals learning from what we find out in the wild in order to make the captive environment better, both in terms of the size of it and uh, environmental enrichment, what animals should be given for food, how they should be kept, what group sizes. So I think there's a lot of positives about that. I think also we're probably never going to get rid of zoos. There's certainly a couple of cases where if it were not for zoos, species that 
had gone extinct in the wild would no longer be but be back in the wild because yeah. Volsky's horse, numerous bird species, and also the golden lion tamarind from Brazil, those populations in the wild were recovered because of captive breeding in zoos. Now, obviously, the hope is that, that we will never have to do that for, say, many of the primate species, but the idea of zoos as an ark, uh, a good zoo as an ark, I think is something we have to remember is still you know, a possibility, hopefully a possibility we never have to rely on because we will succeed in protecting them in the wild. So there's also very clear understanding of, what, of, of appalling zoos where animals are made to perform tricks or they're not fed or they are simply living in a concrete enclosure that has no stimulation, no enrichment. Um, you know, they're fed infrequently. Those zoos, absolutely. Is there anywhere maybe online that there's a, a blacklist of these places so that people can, people can actively avoid them? I'm not, I don't believe there's a blacklist, but there is, um, there's several organisations at different levels around the world. So in the UK, we've got the British and Irish Association of Zoos and Aquaria, or Biaza. And those zoos are regulated, they are open to independent inspection at different times of the year, and they agree to follow a code of conduct. You've then got EASA, which is the European Association of Zoos and Aquaria, and various different groups around this. So there's the American Association of Zoos and Aquaria, etc., etc. And they're all part of WAZA, which is the World Association of okay. Zoos and Aquaria. So that is one indication. You can look, and look for accreditation of the zoo or sanctuary or wildlife park that you're going to visit. And that is a good indication that they are following best practice. And if they're not part of one of those organisations, does that necessarily mean that they're a bad zoo? No, it doesn't. That's very true. So joining Biaza, for the UK example, is voluntary. Right. And it, if, if, or if zoos in the UK are not part of it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are bad or doing anything wrong. And there's various different legal definitions, whether you've got a rescue centre, a wildlife sanctuary, a zoo, an animal park, a safari park. All of those different um, definitions exist under UK law, which can make it very complicated for the public to be able to work out what it is they're doing. Again, it should be possible for any member of the public to go up and, and inquire when they're, when they're visiting to ask what it is that their zoo or a safari park is doing in terms of, of best practice. But also another good way is if an organi- a zoo or a safari park is also collaborating with other organisations as part of an endangered species breeding programme, then mm. that's another good indication that they are also <clears throat> working with others in terms of making sure that animals are moved around different organizations so that there's appropriate breeding we're avoiding inbreeding and that's one way of managing these uh, captive populations if there was ever a need for them to be used to reintroduce back to the wild i think all gibbons are native to southeast asia yep. is that right so what association do we have over there or is there not as much sort of regulation there is an australian association and i believe there is a southeast so it's south try again a southeast asian association of zoos and and aquaria but again it's it's voluntary as to whether or not any zoos are members uh, of that and many of the zoos out there simply are not but there's huge issues with funding as well for many of these zoos and and also regulations it is still possible even in this country to set up a, a private zoo 
And it's certainly possible for that to happen in, in Southeast Asia, which means that there's even less comeback in terms of looking, looking at regulations. This is something that actually, I think it was TripAdvisor a few years ago on the basis of a, a report that was done into people going abroad and much of it was focused on Southeast Asia and doing these kind of activities where they're interacting with wildlife. So stroking tigers or riding elephants or swimming with dolphins. And TripAdvisor decided that because it was too difficult for them to confirm which of these attractions were actually ethical and treating the animals properly, that they just they stopped advertising them at all on their site and made it made it that you couldn't buy tickets to any of these attractions through TripAdvisor. Not that they were saying there are no ethical ways of interacting with wildlife, but they were saying that because the vast majority are not ethical, that and they had no way of saying what was and what wasn't. That they just agreed on a to agreed to blanket sort of ban it on yeah. their site. But then that would cut the funding to vital organizations that are doing conservation work as well yes and this is one of the problems it's um quite often what people will see when they interact you know interacting with a tiger that tiger isn't probably drugged and or it's been beaten into submission There's, they have a hunting instinct they have enormous teeth and enormous paws their instinct is to hunt mm. for you to get that close to that animal and not be mauled it has to have been either drugged or and or beaten into submission Quite often, that's how the elephants are trained as well. You won't see this, but the elephants are trained to be passive, to accept orders, to make sure that they don't suddenly, you know, run off with the tourists. A lot of the times, again, with dolphin swimming, it may seem like the dolphins, a lot of people think dolphins are smiling. That's simply the shape of their mouth. Um, it's got, you know, the crocodiles smile. Again, it's because of the shape of the mouth. They're not actually smiling. They don't have the musculature in their face to smile the way we do. You can have too many people. You, you can stress out the dolphins by um, putting food into the water to encourage the dolphins to come where the tourists are. You're disrupting their normal feeding and hunting patterns. So I would plead with anyone who is thinking of doing this anywhere in the world to do some serious investigation about where it is you go before, uh, before deciding where to go. And especially if you're offered a wild animal to take a selfie. Again, that wild animal's probably come from the wild. It's probably not been bred in captivity, which means that it's probably been taken from its mum as a youngster. And we know this happens with gibbons. And it's been trained to be submissive. And you're actually probably only being offered a young gibbon. When that animal becomes sexually mature, when it's sort of six, seven, eight, it's no longer going to be suitable as one of these photo prop pets. It may be released if it's lucky, or it may simply spend the rest of its life chained up unless it's actually rescued by a rescue centre. So don't have your photo taken with these animals. It simply is another side of the illegal wildlife trade. Yeah, that's horrific that that could happen after it spends its life taking selfies with tourists and then it can just be locked in a cage for, for yeah, the rest of its life. because it's, it's become an adult, so anymore. it's not cute anymore, exactly. Yeah, that's heartbreaking really, isn't it? Yes, and you see this a lot, on, especially on beaches in Thailand, where people come along with a baby gibbon. And, and I've got plenty of pictures of, you can see them, people post them on Instagram. Mm. Um, you know, foreigners on, on holiday in Thailand having their photos taken, not just with gibbons, with, with many species. So again, I would plead with people, please don't do this. 
it may seem harmless, a harmless 10 minutes and a, and a photo you can share with, with people, but it's contributing to a much bigger problem. Sure. What was it that made you first fall in love with Gibbons? People ask me this a lot. In between my third and fourth year of my undergrad at university, I, there was an advert up in the a notice board. I was looking for something to do in the summer. And there was an advert saying, come and work uh, or volunteer at a rescue centre, a Gibbon rescue centre in Thailand. My parents moved around a lot when I was growing up and we spent a lot of time in Zambia. And I always thought I'd end up back doing something with animals in Africa. But went out for three months to Thailand and absolutely fell in love with gibbons. They're singing, the way they move, their expressiveness. And I think part of it also was they're the underdog. They're not monkeys and they're not big apes. And I mean, this was 20 years ago. There wasn't a whole lot of focus on them, either from conservationists or, and certainly not in the eyes of the general public. Most people didn't know what a gibbon was. Yeah. And that's got a little bit better now, but I think, you know, they're, they're very much still in the shadow of their bigger cousins. So perhaps I feel a bit of empathy with them, but it's it's as simple as I just fell in love with them. They're amazing. They're the singing, swinging apes. What's nice. not to like? Uh, could you just quickly explain the difference between uh, monkeys and apes? Because I, I think a lot of people don't necessarily know or it's a bit blurry. Mm -hmm. Is it simply that monkeys have a tail and apes don't? It's a bit more than that. Yes, apes don't have tails but some monkeys also don't have tails. It's actually, it's more of a kind of, it's more of a scientific distinction. And actually this is where the English language is a little bit unhelpful. Many, in many other languages, you don't have a distinction between ape and monkey or even great ape, small ape, monkey. They're all just primates. Um, right. So um, as scientists, we like to put things into boxes. So the easiest, I suppose, way of doing it, and it is, it's down to how, how the body, so apes have the same number and configuration of teeth that we do. Uh, okay. Even though most primate, most monkeys, uh, sorry, most apes will have huge pointed canines for getting into fruit or fighting. We also, as humans, we have canines. They're just not big and pointy. Um, but we have the same number of molars, premolars, our, our, our teeth are the same. There are similarities with the, I believe it's the structure of the placenta. So obviously the, 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 the sac that surrounds the developing baby. We don't have tails. And there is a difference in brain size relative to body size. And then you've got monkeys, which again are split into monkeys that live in Asia and Africa, which is what we call the old world monkeys. And then monkeys which live in South America, they're the new world monkeys. And then you've got uh, lemurs and prosimians, so lemurs from Madagascar, and then many of the nocturnal species like lorises and bush babies. That's roughly what it is. Basically, they're all primates and so are humans. Yeah, I think that's such an important thing to remember that we are part of the ecosystem. We're not, we're not above it or beyond it or outside of it. We are, we are a primate. We are involved in the, uh, the tree very much so. This is something I was actually discussing with the, my undergrads earlier today is I think a lot of the time we, we look and say, oh, um, it's amazing how similar chimpanzees are to humans or how similar something is to humans. I actually think that's the wrong way of looking at it. I think what we need to remember is how similar we as humans are to our primate cousins, because 
we are so incredibly similar in 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 many of our our behaviors and our ways of ways of doing things so it's remembering that actually we're we're like them not that they're like us it's a subtle difference but i think it's worth remembering that we are still very similar to them and and share many of their behaviors many of their ways of doing things yeah just because we wear shoes and clothes and live in houses doesn't mean that we're very different really our behaviors like you say are very similar yes we still have you know we if you boil it down to we still need food we still want social companionship we still want mates we still want to look after infants and we need shelter we just have slightly more complicated ways of doing that so you mentioned sort of a family structure. What's the typical family structure for, well, for a given family? Do they live in like sort of large packs or is it mainly just like what a lot of humans do, uh, live in pairs? Well, that's, they live in pairs. They're actually, in terms of their family social structure, they're more similar to humans than any of the big apes. So you'll generally have an adult male and female and they'll be a bonded pair and to show that they're a bonded pair and where their territory is, they will sing most mornings and they will have between one and three youngsters. So roughly, and again, there are 20 species, so there, are, there is variation. But in general, a female gibbon will have a baby every three years. So she'll have maybe a baby who she's still carrying and then a three-year-old and maybe a six-year-old. And, and once that six-year-old becomes roughly about eight, that's when they'll start moving away from the family and start looking for their own mate and looking to establish their own territory and start their own family. The more we're looking at um, relatedness and genetics, we're starting to realise that they're not as sexually monogamous as we thought they were. It seems that both adult males and females, if the opportunity presents it, may have an affair to put it in human terms, but they always seem to return to their original group and um, will very vigorously defend that territory against other other gibbons. So All right. they are more similar to us, I think, than we, than we thought. Yeah, it does sound very similar, actually. You say they go singing every morning together as a Most pair. mornings, yes. That's not the extent of their defence of their territory, then. If, if someone intrudes into their territory, do they actively fight? Yes and no. Uh, they'll certainly try and avoid any physical contact because there's an increased chance of, of, high, of a higher risk of injury. And of course, if there's an injury, for example, even a broken bone or a slight cut, again, in the tropical environment, there's a high risk of infection. So direct physical contact will be avoided. So I suppose the the territorial singing, which is most, I say most mornings because if it's been raining all night, they're cold, met, wet and miserable. And the first thing they want to do is have breakfast, really, rather than, <laughs> than sing. Very but if like it's humans. Pretty much like us, yes. So, but otherwise, the, the duet, quite often it's the male who will start and the female will join in. And that tells the other gibbons in the forest that they're still here. They're still a bonded pair uh, and, re- and sort of reminds the other gibbons where their territory is so there's multiple functions to the song if and it does happen another gibbon group decides to come into their territory then both groups will start singing at each other there'll be a lot of displaying so shaking of branches chasing backwards and forwards and on very very rare occasions will it actually become a physical encounter i've only seen one in sort of 20 years of actually working with with wild gibbons the vast majority of the time it's it's a lot of chasing and singing and uh, shaking branches as a visual display to 
determine who who's going to win the encounter. So somewhere in our evolutionary history, we came from the trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has sort of become a bit more poignant for me recently because I've recently had a shoulder operation. And one of the things that they, they advise that you can do to strengthen your muscles is simply hanging from a bar. Mm-hmm. Because we're, what we do usually is we, we carry shopping bags or luggage and that sort of thing. So we're, we're constantly lifting, but not often are we hanging off things. Uh, we have like an, an imbalance in our in our shoulder muscles. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just quite interested in sort of the the ability that they have to swing around the branches so fast and with such agility. They must have ridiculously strong shoulder joints and arm muscles. Can you tell us a little bit more about the sort of anatomy that they might have? They have incredibly strong arm muscles. They can hang for a very long time one-handed by using and using the other hand to other hand to feed. Uh, it's been estimated that when they get at full speed, the, the brachiation, that kind of over overarm movement that they're using can get them up to about 35 kilometers an hour. They don't, they don't sustain that for very long. Um, but, and also at certain points, they'll actually fly. They'll leave the one branch, fly a short distance and then grab onto another one. So again, those shoulder muscles are going to need to be incredibly strong. Yeah. Uh, their shoulder socket and ball and socket joint, sorry, is not the same as ours. It's much more flexible, which allows them to do this very rapid overarm movement. Um, I was saying what you were saying about your, your shoulder. We should remember, go back to what we did as kids is play on monkey bars. Yeah. And that's, that's a good example to sort of help people understand how it is that gibbons move. If you think about how we move when we're playing on monkey bars, it's a little bit similar to how a gibbon moves. The difference is, because of the length of our thumb, we grasp onto the monkey bar. But what gibbons do is, because their their thumb is much shorter, it's almost sort of reduced by half, is they actually just hook onto the, onto the bar. And they use that to swing. Now, you can try this at home, but be careful. If you go to a monkey bar, you try hanging on just really by almost your, your four fingers... It, you will not be able to do that for very long. You won't really be able to support a lot of your body weight, but the gibbons can. Have they got much longer fingers? They have much longer fingers, that? yes. What they also do to help, because that's going to use a lot of energy, doing doing that brachiation all the time. Uh, what they also do, and again, it's what we would do when we play on a swing in the play park, is in one, if you're going in one direction, you push your, put, put your legs straight out, and as you're coming back, you tuck your legs under you. You'll see gibbons doing that. So at the, when they're at the bottom of their swing, their legs will be hanging long. And as, they, as the swing continues, they bring their legs up. So that sort of movement of the legs also generates momentum, which allows them to travel. I've uh, watched some videos recently of, of them just swinging around the branches. And I can't quite get my head around how agile and how confident they are moving so quickly. It's almost like we live in kind of a 2D plane mm-hmm. and they their brains just be, must be wired a little bit differently because they seem to be able to jump in any direction at any point. Yes. I think there was a video on your on your website where there was a what was it? I think it was a tiger that went into the area where the gibbons were mm-hmm. and the gibbons came down and were pulling its ears and pulling its tail to try and get it to leave. Yes. Now that's either a very brave or foolish gibbon, I don't know. A little bit of both. I think that was actually filmed, wouldn't have been filmed in Borneo because we have no tigers, but I think it was filmed in India. But one of our, the gibbons and that we that we studied, she's totally wild, or he, sorry, 
uh, Chile has done something very similar, encountered a, encountered a clouded leopard up in the tree and started pulling its tail. I mean, the clouded leopard is the biggest predator on Borneo. And we know Chile has done something similar to a sun bear, uh, a monitor lizard, just again pulling the tail. And it seems not a particularly sensible idea to annoy a large cat with big teeth, but they are incredibly playful. And there's, we've got a very good video on the, on the Borneo Nature Foundation YouTube where it's got a young orangutan and, and Chile, and the two of them are about the same age. But obviously, you know, being an orangutan and gibbon, their movement is very different. And it's really interesting to watch them playing with each other because you can see the differences in how they move. Mm. Chile is much more kind of bouncing around um, like a little spring um, and feel the orangutan. Um, he's much more slow, sort of grasping onto things. And not because there's, you know, there's, he's not slow in himself. It's just he has a different body shape, a different way of moving. And it's amazing to look at this and, and compare the two of them. Yeah, I think bouncing is a really good word. Yeah. When I've watched the videos, they just look to bounce from, from branch to branch. And even when they go on the floor, they, they seem to have quite strong leg muscles as well. And mm -hmm. they're able to just bounce back into a tree yes. at any point. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, let's move on to some of the threats that they face. Yep. Now, obviously, humans are the biggest threat to most, uh, to most wildlife in general, really, mm -hmm. at the moment. So what is it that we're doing that, that we shouldn't be doing? There's many things. Uh, so in terms of the gibbons, one of the, obviously there's a huge problem is, is loss of habitat. They are arboreal primates, which means they need to be up in the tops of trees and in the canopy. It's where they spend 99.99% of their time. So if there are no trees, you're not going to have gibbons. They can't survive. Um, Another of the problems is that even where there is remaining forest, if it's a very small area because everything else around it has been cut down or everything else around it has been replaced by a, an oil palm plantation, then yes, the gibbons are still there, but they've not really got a very bright future because there's nowhere for uh, youngsters once they grow up to move into where they can start their own families. And one of the biggest problems that we're starting to see, and I touched on it earlier with the Gibbons being used as photoprops, but something we're seeing a very disturbing increase in is, is Gibbons being sold as pets on social media, particularly on Facebook and Instagram. And this is, these are open accounts. So, you know, there, some are closed groups, that's, that's true, but there are many of these accounts that are simply open. They're showing pictures of these animals. And when you look at it, it's very clear that most of these animals are four years old or younger, which means for those animals to be available to be sold as a pet, their mother has been killed, potentially other members of the group have been killed because with most animals and humans as well, the mothers are incredibly protective of the infants, as are the fathers and the other members of the group. And so for every gibbon that we're seeing for sale on, on social media, at least its mother has been killed, if not potentially more individuals. So this is having a devastating impact on, on wild populations. And it's illegal. I think a lot of people, when they think about the illegal wildlife trade, they think about the trade in, in ivory and, and obviously elephants and rhinos, or they think about the trade in tiger skins. But this encompasses the movement of live animals. And it doesn't these animals don't have to travel across international borders for it to be illegal. 
it is illegal to have a gibbon as a pet in all the countries where you find gibbons. So in Indonesia, Malaysia, all 10 countries where you find gibbons, it is illegal to have them as a pet. So having these animals for sale on Facebook in Indonesia is still illegal. And of course, whether the animal is being sold internationally or sold within Indonesia, it's still come from the wild. It's still not where it should be. And what kind of punishments are there for people buying them? But mainly, I suppose I'm asking for for the poachers. Assuming they can be caught and successfully prosecuted, the fines and the jail term are are relatively small. Um, uh, But the problem is often a a lot of prosecutions don't happen. And something else that's actually a big problem is that Obviously, these these posts and things can be reported to Facebook and and Instagram, but having Facebook and Instagram simply take them down is ineffective because that's not leading leading to a prosecution. All that's going to happen is that that person selling uh, is going to create a new profile or create a new page, whereas these massive social media companies must have access to these data. They must know who these people are, and surely they should be working with the Indonesian authorities to be able to and and other countries to be able to to find these people and prosecute them and i know there's a lot of uh pressure particularly being put on facebook in the states about how complicit they are in allowing illegal wildlife trade to happen on their platform do you feel like they're not doing enough i feel they're not doing enough in not just illegal wildlife trade but issues of um human trafficking, paedophilia, um, various other things that, that Facebook, I, I don't think I'm absolutely convinced should be doing far more. Because again, one of the things when we're, you know, we're looking at the illegal wildlife trade, it's suggested, I think it's either sort of third or fourth after, I think it's third after the arms trade, drugs and, and human trafficking. And of course, if, if you have the network to move drugs... So third in terms of... Uh, sorry, the third or? in terms of the the, glo- the amount of money globally that, that is being generated by right. it. But of course, if you have the, the network to move arms and people across international borders, you know, shove in a few chimpanzees or orangutans into your, your boxes or whatever, which is what's happening. So it's not that you only have arms dealers or you only have people who deal in illegal wildlife. It's quite likely these are all mixed up together. So it's a massive issue of organized crime. It's not... And I think many people maybe don't necessarily realise that, that that gibbon, for example, that you've taken a picture of whilst you're sat on a beach in Thailand, you know, that entire, uh, the entire illegal wildlife trade, is, is that's part of it. It may, like I said, it may seem harmless, but any action that facilitates these animals being removed from the wild, you've created a, a demand by taking that photograph, because that means you've given some money for that photograph. Therefore, people are going to continue to remove wildlife for tourists to take a selfie because it generates money. So we need we need to stop the demand. If we're if we're looking at solutions, then mm-hmm. I suppose is it just education that you need to educate people in the fact that these photos are obviously not not very beneficial to the well-being of nature, mm-hmm. of, of the wildlife that, that they want the photographs with. Um, is there anything else that we can do alongside education? Is, is there anything that we can do for the poachers, maybe, who might live in a, a place where they, there aren't very many 
uh, well-paid jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a way to to give them another income, maybe in a in a capacity where they can protect the, the wildlife and and still earn a decent living? Because I can kind of I don't want to say I can sympathise, but I if if you don't have enough money and there is an easy way to make some money to be able to feed yourself and feed your family, I can see why people would choose that route. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. If if somebody if that's how the best way, the only way somebody can think of to feed their family, absolutely that is what they will do. And I think any of us would make that choice of you know whether of making that choice to feed our feed our family and you know when again when speaking to to people and colleagues that work around the world a lot of the time that the local people they work with they're, they're not stupid they're not unaware of the impacts they're having on the environment but they are faced with an issue of well yes i understand that what i'm doing is causing a problem but i need to feed my family today i must find food for my family tonight and i think a lot of people forget that conservation issues and dealing with human poverty are almost two sides of the same coin because as you're saying if if somebody has a job that is well paying where their human rights are respected where they're being looked after they're not going to need to go and obtain anything from from the forest because they'll have a reliable income they'll be able to send their send their kids to school but in many cases many places this this isn't the case many remote places you know access to school or access to education that will allow people to get these these different jobs simply isn't there so a lot of it has to come not just from conservation organizations and ngos but also working with the governments and looking at human development about how uh, jobs can be created for for these for these places which then will again it's working right where the problem is around those forests if you can stop the animals coming out those forests and one of the options there, of course, is to create a patrol team, a guard team, um, which can provide, uh, can also provide in- income and training. That's one way, you know, stopping the animals at source, stopping them leaving the forest. But definitely there needs to be an education campaign about these, these animals are not pets and people understanding the impact of what they're doing. You know, as I said, one person taking one selfie may seem harmless, but it's part of the bigger picture and the amount of money that's that's being used. And also, I think people often forget that that cute animal, whatever it may be, is going to become an adult at some point. And the fact that that adult animal becomes a little bit aggressive is normal because they're becoming sexually mature. They're looking for a mate and they're going to want to disperse. And I think many people also don't realise quite how long these animals live. You know, you're taking, if you take on a gibbon, that animal could potentially be with you. I think the oldest lived gibbon in, in a captivity in a rescue centre lived to 55. So you're taking on a massive commitment if, if you're having, and many primates will live for a very long time as well. Uh, but ultimately, they're not pets. They're not domesticated animals. They haven't spent thousands of years closely interacting with us the way that cats and dogs have. Yeah, They're not suitable pets. They belong in the forest and... They're an integral part of keeping that forest ecosystem healthy. They disperse seeds. You know, they help regenerate the forest. A lot of people, I think, often think that wildlife conservation, as wildlife conservationists, we're not interested in humans. We absolutely fundamentally are. Humans are the problem, but also, I believe, have to be the solution. And working with local people is absolutely critical to, to doing that. 
But it's not just about saving the animals, it's working for, for human rights as, as well. And so, yeah, as conservationists, yes, we love hugging trees, but we're quite fond of humans as well. <laughs> Some humans, most of the time. <laughs> so uh, what have you got ongoing at the moment, say in Borneo or in, in Indonesia? Uh, what sort of campaigns are you running Tell me about like what's physically happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. What we're doing specifically in, in, in Indonesia, we're doing a lot of uh, conservation education and outreach campaigns with local school children. And we've got several approaches to that. There's a, a environmental weekly kids club. We are doing modules with high school kids, which also involves a field trip to the forest. We've got uh, storybooks written, obviously, in the local language that help tell people about, about what's happening we do. We try to do a lot of engagement with adults as well. Um, yes, it's important to talk to kids, but you know the adults are at the moment are the ones with the decision-making uh, responsibilities. Sure. So we're trying to do all of that, and then more on a kind of a larger scale through the the section on small apes on the twenty four every twenty fourth of October. It's International Gibbon Day, and we had events in France and India, Indonesia, Malaysia, China, Thailand this year all doing various different activities to sort of promote gibbons and what's happening to them. And we've just relaunched the section on small apes website uh, with a nice introductory video from Ben Garrod uh, to explain about what gibbons are. And the idea with that is to make it a lot more accessible to the general public, but also as a, an accessible resource for the experts as well. So making sure that anything we're producing in terms of guidelines and you know research tools can be accessed for free so it does seem like a, a total global effort really hopefully yes i mean that's that's the thing it's it's to try and get these little known apes sort of better known because and again with you know what's happening with the, the palm oil issues at the moment i mean yeah. these issues have been going on for for a long time but they're much more in the public eye now with the the iceland advert What's happening to the orangutans is exactly what's happening to, to gibbons in, in areas where there, is, where there is palm oil. And, you know, that sort of displacement, as I said, if, there's no, if there are no trees, there are no gibbons. They're, they're dependent on them. And often we are asked, is, you know, this, the, what position we take on the palm oil. And it's absolutely clear that we want sustainable palm oil. We want the producers, the suppliers, the manufacturers to sign up to saying that palm oil is produced in a way that protects biodiversity and protects human rights, not a ban. A ban is not the answer. The Iceland advert that's out at the moment, which says that it's pulling all palm oil from its products, you're saying that that's maybe not quite the right attitude to take. No, but I think it's a lot more nuanced than that. You know, if... I can understand that they may want to pull palm oil from their own brand products because they can't guarantee that the palm oil they're using comes from a sustainable source. However, there are organiza- there are companies rather which are signed up to the roundtable on sustainable palm oil to show that they have got at least in some parts of the production process that they are they have got sustainability that they are working towards that. So is part of the problem that if you took palm oil out of the out of the product, they'd have to replace it with another type of oil, and that other type of oil would uh, would have an equal impact in deforestation and sort of growing a, a different crop. It's not called palm oil, so it doesn't have the negative connotations, mm-hmm. but it still has the same effect. 
Um, well, actually, that's the problem because it wouldn't be equal to palm oil because per hectare or square kilometer, palm oil is the most productive uh, plant. You try and replace that with something like soy or something else uh, for the same number of plants or the same area covered, you're going to get less of that other type of oil produced than if you were covering that area with, with oil palms. So its yield is much better for, for its area. So you'd actually probably have increased deforestation if you ended up replacing palm oil. Well, and it that's also, something people miss quite yes, often. Yes, but the also the, a, ban, a ban simply won't happen because the Indonesian and Malaysian economies are so incredibly dependent on it. And what people also forget is that a ban in the UK is not going to stop demand for palm oil in China and, Indone- and India and within Indonesia itself. Uh, so it's, it's go- that will simply be ineffective. Use that consumer power to demand sustainable palm oil, which will mean ultimately that palm oil going to China and India is also sustainable because the companies will be required to demonstrate that they've got sustainability in all aspects of their, of their production. And I think people forget that there are precedents for consumer power doing this. It used to be possible that you were buying a tin of tuna and you had no idea how it was caught. Now, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a, a tin of tuna, certainly in the UK, that didn't say that it was uh, dolphin friendly. Yeah, I know there's still issues with some of the way things are being caught and it's not as perfectly clear cut as that. 20 odd years ago, people thought anyone who did anyone who recycled was a bit of a hippie weirdo. Whereas now I think we're all far more conscious about recycling and plastic use. And and there is power in in consumer choice. How can people tell by looking at a product if it's actually, if the palm oil that's in it is sustainable or not? Very good question. Uh, And it depends what country you're in. Uh, At least the EU, I think it was in 2014, made a declaration that said that any product in the United, in the in the European Union that had palm oil in it had to say palm oil clearly and not one of the 20 odd derivatives and not to use the chemical name so that it was very clear to a consumer what was in it. It doesn't necessarily say that it's sustainable but there are now an increasing number of websites that you can go onto and um apps that you can use to actually find out what this uh, what this is. And I will just tell you the name of the app, which I have tried on a few things. I haven't tried it on absolutely everything. It's called Geeky? Geeky? G-I-K-I? G-I-K-I. Yes. Um, And you can scan barcodes and look at various other things. So it it will give you an indication of what's going on. As I said, I've only played with it a little bit. But... um, It's worth checking out. it's It's worth checking out, yes. And I understand, you know... My mum has timed how long it takes to go around a supermarket if she's checking every single product for palm oil <laughs> versus just going around and shopping. And it does increase her shop by about two, two hours. But, you know, it's worthwhile doing. Sure. And once you learn what it has got sustainable palm oil in it and what doesn't, your shop will become much easier. Has there been much of an increase in tourism in, in the areas where Gibbons live? In some places, yes. So places which have, I suppose a good history of tourism anyway. Not so much in Indonesia. Um, places like Malaysia, Malaysian Borneo, Cambodia, Thailand, and certainly that is definitely something that is on the increase and something that with many of our other colleagues um, through the section on small apes, we're looking at trying to produce a, basically a best practice guidelines that kind of says, look, 
this is how to be a responsible tourist around primates in general. And um, it's absolutely a good way of generating income and generating interest and letting people learn about what a gibbon is. Yeah, that's what I was going to get at, because I know if people go to uh, to Africa, to I think the Congo, to go on, on walks into the jungle to, to see gorillas. Mm-hmm. I just wondered if there was anything similar in the in the gibbon world. And yeah, basically, if there is best practice that's followed by any of those organizations? Um, yes, and we're, we're working on it. Uh, so in the next few weeks, I'm going to be putting up a few, a list of a few places onto the, the SSA website, which is just www.gibbons.asia. Uh, and that's going to be up, updated and increased as, as people come along. And again, the idea with all of this is to make certainly the guidelines and everything to be accessible, not hidden in some... Um, scientific journal that people can't access but to be available so people can make their own choices sure yeah is there anything else that you want to say that you want to tell people any advice that you want to give people the last thing I suppose is I think people can feel very powerless when there's a lot there's so many negative and, and upsetting conservation news coming out there and there's an awful lot to be done and and so many different problems but that means there are also opportunities for lots and lots and lots of different solutions. Um, and I have to quote Jane Goodall in this, where she says that, you know, we have a reason for hope, and I do believe that, but it needs everyone to come together in whatever way you can to help do this. And just how can people get in touch with you and how, how can people help? Go on to the SSA website. There's a contact form you can fill in, which will sign you up to the newsletters. Uh, that's also another way of getting in touch with me. And there's also lots of information on there about many of the other Gibbon experts also still needing updated, but different countries, different things you can do. And yes, have a look at that. And hopefully you like it. Great. Thank you very much. It's been really informative for me. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. And it's just great to see people putting in this amount of effort and this amount of work for such a positive and good cause. Well, thank you. It's the first podcast, so hopefully the first of many. Dr. Susan Chain. I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. If you did, please leave me a review. If you want to send me some feedback, that would be much appreciated. Hit me up on Twitter, at FascinatePod, if you want to. If you want to get in touch with Susan, or learn more about Gibbons, you can go to gibbons.asia. Or you can check them out on Twitter, at iucn underscore gibbon. Thank you very much to Susan. Thank you to you for listening. See you next time.